So over the course of this past week, I have uh, spent time each morning uh, reading through Colossians chapter 3 very slowly. And so I've uh, taken the chapter. It's not a very long chapter. And as we continue in our series here, uh, it makes a lot of sense to be reading from that particular book and that particular chapter. But as I read through the chapter, uh, I would end each time, not at the end of chapter 3, but actually at the beginning of chapter 4. You notice that our reading actually goes uh, through verse 1 of chapter 4. It's a strange place uh, to end uh, a section. The section actually ends at that point, but it's a strange place to end it. In fact, the Bible Study Magazine, uh, one of the writers there uh, referred to it as being ridiculous. Uh, but here is this point where reading through that, uh, it is an odd place. But, but note this, when you get to verse 18 of chapter 3, there's almost like this, this weird shift that happens. That everything we've been reading through Colossians suddenly hits a screeching halt and we're in this new topic. You see this line here. It simply says, Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. It's almost like we just went into a completely different piece of writing at that moment. And I imagine for some folks here this morning, uh, as you heard the scripture reading, or even as you've anticipated it uh, during the week, if you follow us on Facebook, you would see uh, those readings are posted each week early in the week. Uh, you might feel a little bit uneasy for other reasons. You may not be so sure about this idea of wives being subject to their husbands. And it would be for good reason. Uh, let me add here, you're not alone in that thinking. Actually, a few years ago, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation uh, posted a report entitled, Submit to Your Husbands, Women Told to Endure Domestic Violence in the Name of God. I think we get the idea of where that report was headed just from the title, but note what the abstract that followed that title said. Here's just a little excerpt from that. Advocates say the church is not just failing to sufficiently address domestic violence, it is both enabling and concealing it. Well, if that's the case, that's a, that's a big charge. So there's where the uneasiness might come, or at least some of it. Now, I wish I didn't have to say this this morning as we go to this text and as we, as we look at this, but let me be clear about this uh, before, before, again, we unpack uh, what is being said here by the writer. If you think the message of this text in any way justifies abusive or exploitive behavior, and not just in the portion about wives and husbands, but also when we look at children in their relationship, if you think it's about that, you're wrong. You're wrong. Abusing another person, exploiting them for your own gain or perverted sense of power, and entitlement, that's not only far away from the message, that's far from the character of God, the one who speaks here in this text. I might add here, it's heinous and it's despicable as well. We rightly call it sin. If you find yourself in this type of situation, you need to seek help, you need to get out from that situation. Well, Christianity Today, in regards to the report from uh, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, actually published a, uh, what you might call a corrective uh, to that report. It featured a sociologist who studies uh, families and marriage trends, and the sociologist went on to write and refute some of the conclusions that were drawn by that ABC report, uh, but at the same time admitted something that I, I don't think is all that reassuring uh, under the question about evangelical Protestantism, uh, it asks the question, is it bad for marriage and good for fostering domestic violence? Here's how that article answered. The answer is complicated and, in general, 
no. Again, like I said, not super reassuring in that. And of course, uh, looking at our text this morning, uh, in the contours of the text, one might be inclined to just, let's just dismiss the whole text in total. Let's just throw the whole thing out. Uh, it seems to be outdated, it seems irrelevant and outmoded for uh, maybe a few reasons in your mind, uh, but one in particular, it spends most of its time talking about the relationships between masters and slaves. And so again, that we don't seem to have a a cultural equivalent to that. I mean, some people have tried to say uh, this might be, we might be able to justice and use this about jobs and subordinate relationships uh, in, the, in the job world. But again, it's, it talks about slaves and masters, and so it feels like this, this thing might just be old and out of date. It's, it's not for us today. Well, as tempting as that might be, as tempting as it might be to think that, to just throw it out, as easy as we might assume that might be, I think there's something more here. In these instructions, there's something to be mined here for us today. And so with that in mind, we turn our attention to what Paul lays out here uh, and, and what he has to say. But let me say something about the contours of the actual passage itself. Uh, this, this idea of what we call a household table, that's what Luther referred to it as, uh, but go even further back to the ancient world, uh, this style of writing where you would address different groups, husbands and wives, uh, fathers or parents and their children, uh, addressing even masters and slaves. That type of grouping is actually something that would have been known in that day outside of the biblical writers. It's something that would have been picked up in the Greco-Roman world. Folks like Aristotle and Philo and Josephus, they, these are folks that actually uh, include this type of form in some of their writing. So it's not unique. It's not surprising to see this. It's not uh, something that would only be found in the scriptures. Uh, it's something that's clearly within that first century culture in which Paul is writing. It's, as one commentator said, it's something that would have, quote, been in the air. And so as we come to it, to have that in mind, that we are looking at a text that was formed and shaped within the world in which it was written, and for us to understand that as a 21st century uh, reader and hearer. And that, let's also at the same time uh, recognize that some of the things in the list we actually uh, understand. We know that husbands are to love their wives. We have some understanding of what that looks like. We also know in verse 20, we understand what it looks like for children to obey their parents. And we could even imagine what it would mean for a slave to obey their earthly master and for masters to treat slaves justly and fairly, as we see in the latter part of the section. These are all things that we can wrap our minds around, but the troubling parts for us, I think, are the ones that we struggle to wrap our minds around here. So let's tackle those right off the bat here. Let's ask the question, what does it mean for a wife to be subject to her husband? What does that mean for a 21st century hearer? And second of all, let's ask the question about what does it mean for fathers not to provoke their children? I think if we could answer those two things, it will help us go a long way towards understanding what the passage might be saying to us and for us today. So take on the first one here. Uh, turn your attentions here to that sticky word that we have translated, subject. Now, if you look in different translations, the word also uh, gets picked up with the word submit. Uh, we see that as in, uh, su or submit yourselves. They actually add some additional pieces to it. Or be submissive was another translation. I read through a number of translations this week, and it had kind of that, that range is what you saw throughout there. Also found a range of interpretation in there as well. The message actually tries to soften a little bit. Eugene Peterson, is, as he writes, uh, he tries to qualify submit uh, in verse 18 by writing, wives, understand and support your husbands by submitting to them. Whereas something like the original Living Bible 
that was published in the early 70s uh, would be a lot less softening by just simply saying, for that is what the Lord has planned for you. And so a little, a little bit more rigid in its interpretation there. Well, the word in question that we have here, it's a, it's a Greek word uh, that's actually etymologically constructed of two uh, Greek words that come together. It's hypotassos, or tasso is the word, uh, and hypo means under, and tasso is order, or to order under, if we were to uh, look at that kind of in a, in a rough translation. And here is where we can kind of see this idea of being subject to or submitting to, uh, this uh, idea of being a one who is uh, ordered under another one. In the Septuagint, that Greek translation of the Old Testament, uh, this same word is oftentimes, or at least, sorry, sometimes references this idea of submitting to God. But more often, it's employed in use when it talks about uh, submitting to, uh, like in a military context or in a national context. And so the word does get picked up in different places. Again, it does hold that idea of being ordered under. Uh, again, submission and subject is where we see there. In the New Testament, it can, it can actually uh, a reference a forcible subjecting. Uh, so this idea of evil spirits who are subjected to the authority of God, the same word would, would come in that. So there's this forcible subjecting. But here's the thing. More often, it's found in exhortations for what we might say is a voluntarily putting oneself under the authority of something or someone else. Note the word there, voluntarily. We want to keep the relationship in view here, as Paul writes. We're talking about a husband and a wife. It's important to have that within our own cultural context. We're not talking about a general axiom for relationships between women and men. You just imagine yesterday, I don't have to imagine yesterday, I actually lived yesterday, so I guess I could probably do more. I could remember yesterday, but I could imagine how some people might have received uh, some of the news uh, that was happening really of a historic proportion. It doesn't matter who you voted for in necessarily in, in what I'm going to share here, uh, for us as Americans just to acknowledge the historic significance of what we have with a president and vice president-elect with a woman being the vice president-elect, of the significance of that for us as a nation. And that, that sense of what it means for, for women to be involved in the process up to the highest levels of government uh, is pretty new for us as a, as a nation. It's new for us in the vice president position, but even voting, which is only about 100 years old for women to vote in this country, um, so to, to recognize that we as a nation have been trying to work out our own understanding of gender roles and identities, uh, those, are, those are new things for us. And we're still stumbling our way through and trying to understand what it means for us now and also going into the future. I imagine that, that folks who've lived and dwelled in this passage, um, who've had this kind of picture of a hierarchy of male over female, that to step back and just simply absorb what Paul's doing here in this text. Again, for this one, it's limited to a husband and a wife. In this particular text, he's talking about a couple that have made a relationship, formed a covenant, uh, who formed or forged a life together with particular roles and responsibilities. But in our culture, we oftentimes see that, uh, sometimes in this type of hierarchical structure, but oftentimes within kind of a mutual uh, life together. 
I know my wife and I, if I were to describe our relationship, I, would like, to, I like to describe it as co-regents, that we co-rule together in our household. And I'm sure many of you have a similar type understanding relationship with that. But here Paul talks about this relationship, uh, this idea of submission exhorted here for wives. Uh, and in the first century, it's done so within also a radical restructuring what the husband is to do. Notice that he says there that husband is to love his wife and never treat her harshly in verse 19. So the wife being subject to the husband in this first century context is, is paired immediately with the sense that the husband also has responsibilities here to love and to not treat harshly. A corresponding passage in Ephesians chapter 5, uh, beginning in verse 22, and reading through the first part of chapter 6, expands what Paul has in mind regarding what the husband's love looks like for his wife. Note these couple things that he says there. He says, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, uh, that's, that's a, a huge picture of what love looks like from the husband, a, sacri- a self-sacrificing type love. He goes on to say, the second part, husbands should love their wives as they do their own bodies. And so just extending not only that self-sacrifice, but that's, that selfless kind of love. That's what he has in mind here. So whatever radical call we might say that Paul is giving to wives here, he's also giving a radical uh, example to husbands as well. So let's uh, be clear here. Paul is exhorting married men and women to live uh, here in an ordered way, as we see in the text, and to offer themselves to one another in a particular way. But before we leave this particular verse, before we move on here, uh, let me offer a few additional considerations for us as we interpret this, again, for what it might mean for us. Note that here in Colossians, the first thing is this, uh, the sphere of husband, wife, father, children, master, slaves, uh, that the latter two use this word obey. Children are to obey their parents. Slaves are to obey their masters. But for the husband and wife, he employs a different word. He says, subject or submit. The relationship is intended here, even in the first century, so many years ago, to be one that is not authoritarian, but it's one that's voluntarily entered into. Um, It's one in which there's a mutualness to that. The second thing is this, is to recognize that Paul is writing in a patriarchal culture, one in which the husband ruled the household. That's what the culture was at. That's what they were espousing. It's important to keep that in our consideration as Douglas Moo, a commentator I was reading through this past week, and I might add here, Douglas Moo, uh, who teaches at Wheaton, so this is someone coming from an evangelical conservative position, has noted, and he offers a little opening of the door here, he says, submission may take different forms in different cultures. Uh, And Moo goes on to say here, the New Testament teaching about the oneness of all in Christ, coupled with the demand that husbands love their wives, sets a trajectory that leads to a more equal sharing of all dimensions of the marriage relationship. And so to hold those pieces in tension with our understanding of what it means for the couple to come together here, Paul in his time is pondering the gospel's impact on the marital relationship. And he's reading it within the culture in which he lives. And we know that he wasn't able to read it as as we here in our day and age uh, maybe have new understandings and new vistas and new expansions because he obviously could not see past slaves and masters. But what he does is what he sees here is he sees that the role that Jesus Christ holds in the life of the believer, the position of Christ as Lord, as he's already made known in Colossians, and the position of the believer to say that my mind and my heart are going to be on things above 
should shape the way that your marital relationship exists. It should shape the way that women should relate to their spouses. It should shape the way that men relate to their spouses as well. And it should shape our, all of our thinking. So there's a second one here, this don't provoke your children. Now, I kind of know what that looks like because I, I feel like sometimes I might provoke my daughter, <laughs> even at a young age. Um, I like to say sometimes she's provoking me, but in actuality, it's probably me provoking her. Verse 21 exhorts fathers not to provoke your children. Or they may lose heart, is what the passage goes on to say. I've witnessed far more attention given in preaching this passage or teaching this passage to husbands and wives and then to her children obeying, but not as much as fathers uh, exhorting uh, their kids. So let's, let's just look at a couple pieces here. It's curious that we kind of avoid this section. It would be a great Father's Day sermon, I'm sure. Uh, but let's look, at, let's look at a couple pieces here from this. First of all, Paul exhort, exhorts fathers here. The word there, pateres, is actually a word that can be translated parents. Uh, it is a, a masculine word, so it is, it is addressing fathers, but it could be expanded to parents, and particularly in our own culture, uh, we might say uh, that this type of uh, understanding of parents that have uh, equal responsibility or mutually raising their children uh, could be a mother or father or whatever the relationships might be. Uh, it could be extended to all the parents who are involved in, the, in that raising here. But to the context itself, uh, Paul would draw on the idea of fathers here. It fits with the flow uh, going through her, but we know that it can be expanded there. In Paul's day, orders would have given to children. The final order would have begun from a father. And so Paul is tackling a very specific thing within his own culture, a particular role that fathers would have had. And so it's important for us to see that and recognize that. And he's telling them to do it in a certain way. Again, the lordship of Jesus Christ changes the way that we engage our family. It changes the way that we engage our relationships. He says this Greek word in here, this idea of do not provoke, that word holds the meaning of causing someone to react in a way that it accepts uh, or it suggests acceptance of a challenge. It's the idea that uh, you might push and push and push and push and push so much so that now the child is now going to turn rebellious and fight back and resist and maybe even tune out your voice. And Paul says, do not provoke them to that place. Do not push your children into that place. I know for uh, many parents, uh, there is uh, a sense there's a button that can be pushed by your children. And they can find that. And kids are good at finding those buttons for you. We're good at finding them for other people. And sometimes they like to push at that and push at that. And we as parents are not to be people that do that to our children. We're not to abuse our kids in that way. And here Paul is reminding uh, fathers in their very particular role, but again expanding that to uh, parents of all kinds, saying we, when we talk to children, when we raise children, when we teach them up, we're not to press them and press them and press them to the point that they lose heart. Or I might add here that they're incapable of living out their own exhortation to obey their parents because they've been pushed too far, because they've been pushed too hard. We're not to overcorrect. We're not to scorn their efforts. We're not to provoke them to become disheartened. And like I said, we're not to provoke them to become rebellious. All because we have a patient and loving God who is our master, our Lord, who sets a different example for us. And we need to apply that to our children. So what's the motivation? I think we all guess here what the motivation is. We've heard it so many times here throughout the text. Uh, 
you might say these are good reminders, uh, thanks for the virtue lesson, um, but what if I'm not married? What if I don't have children? What if I'm, I'm not married, I don't have children, I'm an adult, I don't live in the family home? Uh, is this all personally irrelevant for me? Do these, these, these tables here not represent anything that would speak to me? God doesn't have a word for me at this place. Well, I'd say to that sense that there is a motivation that runs throughout these different verses. And it's a motivation that can be extended out to a larger category. You notice that uh, the manner in which wives are to relate to their husbands in verse 18, that it's motivated by what is fitting to the Lord. You'll notice in verse 20 that the manner to which children are to relate uh, to their parents corresponds to what is identified as acceptable duty in the Lord. You know that in verse 22 that slaves were to conduct themselves out of fear of the Lord and, that, and not fear of their masters, as we might expect naturally within a patriarchal hierarchy. And that masters were to treat their slaves, as the text goes on, they're to do so justly and fairly, motivated by the fact that they themselves were under a heavenly master. Ultimately, what we find here is that for the Christian, our conduct is motivated and determined by Christ. And that's a point that Paul has made throughout Colossians. And now here in some very specific ways within the culture in which he lived. We are to live Christ's lives in our own culture, in our own day. Or even better, we're to live Christ's lives within our own homes. I found Murray J. Harris's reminder here to be helpful. Which he writes, to pursue the realm above, like Paul says in chapter 3, verse 1, and to be preoccupied with his affairs in verse 2, does not prompt an ascetic otherworldliness, but rather a wholehearted commitment to the daily duties of this world for the sake of the Lord. So what would he do with all this? Well, let me offer a couple conclusions here for us to consider. The first one is this. Uh, Jesus in my heart, doctrine in my head, but real dysfunction in my home and in my relationships, that's a real problem. That's what that text, this text tells us. That we're to rightly order our lives, not necessarily within the cultural structures that exist, but within the structure of the hierarchy in which Jesus Christ is Lord. If Jesus is enough, as our series, Enough's Enough, Jesus truly is enough, Jesus should also be shaping our own lives, and the, particularly our relationships this morning. The Christian home is to be ordered under the lordship of a man? No. It's to be ordered, as we see in this text, under the one who came and called himself the son of man, under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And so we act in accordance to that. The second thing is this, uh, for us to consider here, is take an inventory then of your relationships. Look at the relationships that you have in your life. Uh, if you're married, certainly uh, your spouse. If you have children, your children. Uh, your extended family, your parents. Consider uh, folks that you might call family who may not be biological family or bloodline family, um, but certainly you might call them as being close. Uh, consider those relationships and even extend that out to friends, uh, colleagues, coworkers, all the people in your life that you have relationships with. Do an inventory of those folks. And spend some time in discernment of asking, how might those relationships look differently or be transformed and changed, knowing that Christ 
is Lord of my life? How might those change? Who and where those relationships, the quality of them? And item three here, I just add here, we follow closely with that, then improve those relationships. Who these people are, what they mean to you, how can those relationships then be improved? How can they be improved by the grace that God has given me, that God has shown me, so that I might rightly order them, that I might act appropriately within them? Close with these words from uh, someone who wrote in a 2015 article in Relevant Magazine. Uh, they were playing around with this idea of, of this passage, and they, they wrote these words that I thought were very helpful for us, and to consider them as a prayer as we enter into a season of looking at our own relationships in very particular ways that Christ's lordship might transform and change us. Deborah Folletta concludes her own article in saying this. She says, May the Lord teach us to love just as we've been loved by him. And may that love influence our relationships, our marriages, our families, and even our world. May it be so. Friends, let us pray together. Lord, as we pray now to you, as we come before the one who indeed is our Lord, the one who is our master, the one who is our example, and who calls us to an ordered life, a life that's ordered with Christ on the throne. We pray, Lord, that you would open up those spaces in our, in our own heart that we might be renewed and reshaped by your Spirit. May your word lead us to a place where we might examine uh, who we are and who we're in relationship with. And in so doing, Lord, we pray that you would give us the power and the ability to see change in the way that we interact with those we love. Give us deeper hearts. Help us to draw from a deeper pool of your love and your grace that we might exhibit that to all we encounter. We pray this in Jesus' name.